1: Welcome to Animal Voices, Western Canada's only radio program dedicated to animal advocacy and compassionate living. This is 100.5 FM CFRO Vancouver Co-op Radio in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, unceded Coast Salish territories. Today is Friday, April 24th, 2020. I'm your host, Elise Jacobson. Thank you for joining me here on this lovely day. Our feature interview today is with author Christopher Locke. Christopher Locke describes himself as a raconteur, iconoclast, sit down comedian, love that, and avid animal advocate. After working for over a decade in the television industry, Christopher left his job to pursue his true dream of writing his own projects full time. Thus far, he has published two young adult novels entitled Persimmon Takes on Humanity and Vincent and the Dissidents, the first two of three books in the Enlightenment Adventures series, and the perfect combination of his two great passions in life, storytelling and animal issues. Our interview with him is coming up in about half an hour, so stay tuned. Today is World Day for Laboratory Animals, so we'll also be hearing a fascinating talk by Dr. Charu Chandrasekara one of the world's leading experts on alternatives to animal testing. Animal testing is largely disfavored globally, but the world is struggling to find alternatives. Dr. Charu Chandrasekhar's research has proven that there is not only a viable replacement, but one that is cheaper, faster, and more relevant to humans. Dr. Chandrasekhar is the founding executive director of Canada's first and only research centre dedicated exclusively to alternatives to animal testing, the Canadian Centre for Alternatives to Animal Methods and its subsidiary, the Canadian Centre for the Validation of Alternative Methods, officially launched at the University of Windsor in October 2017. Dr. Chandrasekhar obtained her PhD in Biochemistry and Molecular Biology from the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Calgary. The ensuing animal-centered research endeavors in heart disease and diabetes gave her firsthand experience to recognize the immutable limitations of, and the impetus to shift away from, animal testing. As an experienced scientist, a former animal researcher, a science policy expert, and an animal lover, Dr. Chandrasekhar now advocates for a paradigm shift in which human biology serves as the gold standard. We'll be hearing from her in just a few minutes. This week here on Co-op Radio, we're in the middle of our annual spring member drive. We are a 100% listener-sponsored community radio station, and we rely on your donations to keep bringing you compelling programming that you won't find on any mainstream corporate radio. If you enjoy listening to Animal Voices or any of the dozens of other shows on Vancouver Co-op Radio, please consider becoming a member today. You can do so by visiting coopradio.org slash donate. You also have the option of making a one-time donation if you'd prefer not to become a member. Donations over $60 are tax deductible. Every dollar helps, so please donate today. Once again, that's coopradio.org slash donate. And now we'll hear from Dr. Charu Chandrasekhar speaking at the University of Windsor.
3: Alzheimer's, diabetes, heart failure, ALS, Parkinson's, what do these diseases have in common? We don't have cures for them. Correction, we don't have cures for them in people. But all these diseases have been cured in mice. Razor, Bacol, Trazolol, Resilin, Fiox. What do these drugs have in common? They've all been withdrawn from the market due to lethal consequences in humans, but they were safe and effective in mice. Ladies and gentlemen, we've all heard the glories of animal research, the discovery of insulin, penicillin, and the polio vaccine, history-altering medical breakthroughs that wouldn't have been possible without the use of animals at that time. But those tales of the glories are few and far in between. Breakthroughs in research labs don't make it into our pharmacies very often anymore, like 95% of the time. You heard me right, 95% of drugs, tested and found to be safe and effective in animals fail in human clinical trials. Of the 5% that make it through, half of those are withdrawn, or they receive black box warnings due to unpredicted side effects in humans. We have spent years and years and years doing disease research to understand the molecular basis of disease. Then from there, it takes another 10 to 15 years and costs one to two billion dollars to bring a single drug to market This whole process relies heavily on animal data until we hit human clinical trials. It's a house of cards built on a table full of termites. This animal-centered paradigm has two main implications, the hidden threats and the missed opportunities, what I call the bad and the ugly. On the one hand, we have drugs that pass animal testing with flying colors, for example, Vioxx, an anti-inflammatory painkiller that past animal testing with flying colors in six different species. It was safe. There were no indications of cardiovascular problems. In fact, there were several studies in mice that showed it could actually be cardioprotective. It could be beneficial to your heart. But in reality, in the United States alone, 88,000 people had heart attacks and more than 38,000 of them died. Now, what about the Converse scenario? What if there were a drug that worked beautifully in humans, one that was safe during pregnancy, one that you could take one a day to keep heart attacks away. But what if this drug caused birth defects in mice, rats, guinea pigs, rabbits, cats, dogs, sheep, and monkeys? Then this drug would never be approved for your use. And right here, I'm not talking about a hypothetical drug, I'm talking about aspirin, something that's probably in all of your medicine cabinets, a life-saving drug. So how many other, life-saving, history-altering medications have we missed out on? We don't know the answer to that because they never came to market. Why is animal research such a failure-prone endeavor? Now, I'm gonna need the rest of the afternoon to answer that question, but I can give you a glimpse into this world. From fruit flies to primates and everyone in between, we use animals to emulate our diseases and our drug responses. Mice and rats serve as the gold standard and they account for more than 90% of animals used in biomedical research, not least because they emulate our biology the best, but mostly because it's convenient. They're cheap, they're easy to manipulate, they have short lifespans, and there's decades of historical data. The real problem is all these species are separated by crucial genetic, biochemical, physiological factors that were brought upon by hundreds of millions of years of evolution. And these factors are further confounded by things such as age and sex variability and the way we experimentally induce diseases in these animals and even the way we house and breed these animals. Most of our controlled animals are not even appropriate controls. They're sick before we even make them sick. So all of these factors can mislead entire fields into wasting decades of time and billions of dollars. Let's consider one example. Alzheimer's disease. Did you know that it's been a hundred years since Dr. Alzheimer first described the disease named after him? We've spent an enormous amount of time and energy studying Alzheimer's disease, and we've managed to cure it in mice. But in humans, we don't even understand the molecular basis of this disease. Over 400 human clinical trials have failed. That's a 99.6% failure rate. So what do our frustrated scientists want to do? they want to create better animal models. This is not just in Alzheimer's, but this holds true for pretty much every disease prevalent in our society today. We have a scientific culture ingrained in animal research, a culture obsessed with curing animals, a culture that often forgets we are trying to cure humans. So what's happening while we strive to create better animal models? Every seven minutes, a Canadian dies of a heart attack. Every nine minutes, a Canadian dies of a stroke. We don't have cures. Every three minutes, a Canadian is diagnosed with diabetes. Almost a century after the discovery of insulin in Toronto, we don't have a cure for diabetes. 40% of Canadians will get cancer in their lifetime. There are no cures for cancer, for most cancers today, and there's nothing on the horizon. We can continue down this path for another century and not make. Major progress if we continue this same way. It is undeniable that animals have contributed immensely to our understanding of disease and biology in general, and they have even led to some medical discoveries and advancements. We always glorify those limited successes and sweep the colossal failures under the rug. In the second decade of the 21st century, it's paradoxical that we know more about animal biology than our own biology. If the ultimate goal of the scientific community is to advance human medicine, it's time to prioritize human biology. It's time to think beyond animal testing. It's time to usher in a new era of research and innovation. It's time to make humans the quintessential animal model. It's time to make our biology the gold standard. So how do we do this scientifically and ethically? Again, I'm going to need the rest of the afternoon to talk about that, but I will give you a glimpse into this world. Since the human genome was mapped 16 years ago, we have a tremendous amount of information and tools at our disposal to look at human biology in a completely different light. We can use cells and tissues from cadavers and from surgical remains we can engineer cells we can take a teeny little biopsy of your skin and generate adult stem cells and convert those cells reprogram those cells to become any cell type in your body and you can take these cells and engineer them to become more complex structures little organs that we call organoids or 3d bioprint them so they mimic the tissues in our body more accurately and you can take these cells, these organoids, these tissues and organs, and configure them in so many different ways to create disease in a dish. Or you can put them on a computer chip the size of a thumb drive and do drug testing on it, test hundreds of drugs at once. These micro-engineered environments emulate our natural physiology. We can use non-invasive imaging and population studies epidemiological data that we've relied on for hundreds of years. And we can use computational modeling. Artificial intelligence and supercomputers are giving us the ability to model human biology to an unprecedented level of detail and simulate biological scenarios that would never be possible in a living organism. So how are we doing with this? Here's a glimpse into this world. We're already getting more insight into Alzheimer's disease in humans simply by looking at the brains of patients who died of Alzheimer's disease. And we can take stem cells from these patients and grow brain cells, cells that carry the disease within them or we can assemble them into more complex structures that we call mini-brains. It's like taking a little part of a brain but it's recreated in a dish. It has all the different cellular interactions and the physiology and the biochemistry. And My colleague, Dr. Thomas Hartung at Johns Hopkins University is already creating Parkinson's in a dish. He's creating autism in a dish. We're replacing animal testing one by one. Instead of using mice for allergy testing, you can use human cells. Instead of using rabbits for skin irritation, you can use engineered synthetic human skin. Instead of forcing dogs to inhale toxic chemicals, we can use human lung epithelial cells or lung on a chip. And computer programs are already beating animal tests, predicting our biology, our drug responses. This is 21st century science and innovation. Do we have every single thing we need today to replace animal testing altogether? No, we don't, but we certainly need to move in that direction toward ultimate replacement. Slowly but surely, the world is moving in this direction. From the Americas to the Far East, many countries across the globe have already established national centers dedicated to the development and validation of alternative methods, and they've approved legislation and developed strategic roadmaps to shift away from animal testing. And right here at the University of Windsor, we established Canada's first and only center of its kind, the Canadian Center for Alternatives to Animal Methods and the affiliated Canadian Center for the validation of alternative methods. The overarching vision of our center, something that I developed from the back of a napkin to reality, the overarching goal is to promote the replacement of animals in Canadian biomedical research, education, and regulatory testing through 21st century science, innovation, and ethics. Through our newly established Eric Esmagulis Research and Training Laboratory for Alternative to Animal Methods, we're doing disease research. We're looking at human disease using human cells and tissues. We're creating diabetes in a dish and Alzheimer's in a dish. And we're developing academic programs to train the next generation of scientists, ethicists, policymakers, and regulators to. Think outside the cage. And through our validation center, we're working with Health Canada and our international partners to modernize toxicology and chemical safety testing. We're joining the global efforts in a uniquely Canadian way. Animal testing is not only scientifically flawed, but it's riddled with ethical concerns as well. As scientists, we have a scientific and an ethical obligation to adhere to the highest ethical standards. Animals are not merely tools in science, they're not cells on a petri dish, they're living, breathing, sentient beings who feel pain, beings who, if they had the choice, would never consent to experimentation. As a former animal researcher, I experienced firsthand that when it comes to feeling pain, these animals in labs are not different from the cats that I absolutely cherish and adore and respect at home. The time has come for the scientific community to uphold the highest scientific and ethical standards to reduce the use of animals as much as possible and to replace the use of animals whenever, wherever, and anywhere possible. In the same way we look at gladiator fights and slavery today, future generations will read about our animal research labs with a mix of incredulity and contempt. It's time to show them that we took the right steps in history to shift away from a failing animal-centered paradigm to one that's scientifically viable and ethically justifiable. If we were to discover insulin, penicillin, and the polio vaccine today, We can do that without using animals. Imagine for a moment in the not too distant future, you walk into your doctor's office and the doctor takes a teeny little skin biopsy off of you, sends it off to the lab and they derive adult stem cells from this little sample and they reprogram these to become every cell type in your body and they take these cells and bioprint them into teeny little tissues and organs. Take these tissues and organs and put them on a custom organs on a chip platform and test hundreds of drugs on it to find the one that's most appropriate for you based on your cells, your tissues, and your biology, not mouse biology. This is what we owe to the next generation. This is what we owe to the generations past, the generations that never got the cures they deserved to get. It's time to pave the way for the future generations to have access to safe and effective medicines and the platforms to do biomedical research and chemical safety testing that meet the highest ethical standards. Every Canadian now has the power and the opportunity to contribute to that legacy. Thank you very much.
1: Once again, that was Dr. Charu Chandrasekharas speaking at the University of Windsor. You're listening to Animal Voices here on Vancouver Co-op Radio in Vancouver, BC, Canada, unceded Coast Salish territories. Co-op Radio has been on the air and a fixture in the local Vancouver community for 45 years. Here at Animal Voices, we have a couple of young volunteers who have been with us for just a few months. Here they are talking about how getting involved with the show has been valuable for them and why you should consider becoming a member of Co-op Radio.
4: So Grace, last week on the show, we were talking about becoming a member and you had said that you were interested in getting your membership have you done that yet?
0: Actually, I got my membership earlier today. Um, It was really easy and I got to direct my donation towards Animal Voices Radio.
4: That's so wonderful. Why do you want to be a member of the show?
0: Well, I've been guest co-hosting Animal Voices Radio for the past few months um, and it's really been life-changing. I've gotten to speak to a lot of interesting people around the city and the world on interesting topics and... um, And spend this time with my friend as well.
4: Yes, we love that. We love that. Um, Yeah, we've been on the radio for the past four months. And we have been able to do interviews um, pre-recorded as well as live in the studio. And both experiences have been really wonderful for us to get experience with the radio and with being involved in the animal rights community in a new way. So that has been really wonderful for both of us.
0: Yeah, we get to engage in a new group and talk on subjects on a broader spectrum and to a wider range than we're used to.
4: So if you would like to become a member, what should they do? How do they become a member, Grace?
0: Just go to coopradio.org forward slash donate now. Click become a new member or renew your membership to donate either annually or have a reoccurring membership. Of 25 cents to $100 coming in every month so that co op radio knows how much is coming in week to week. We're trying to raise $1,000, people. <laughs>
2: Vancouver Cooperative Radio has been your community radio station for 45 years. We're here to support you during this time of social distancing and isolation. We turn to our communities in times of need. We may have to keep at least six feet apart, but we can stay connected through media such as Community Radio. Co-op Radio is dedicated to bringing you local updates on what's happening in your community. Please support us by donating. You can donate online at coopradio.org. That's co-opradio.org. and hit the Donate button in the top right. Or you can mail a cheque to 370 Columbia Street, Vancouver, V4A4J1. Thanks for your support, and stay safe.
1: All right, so I'd like to welcome uh, Leah Thompson and Nadine Coffin, two members of our local animal rights community. Um, We wanted to talk a little bit today about uh, something that's kind of an ongoing issue in the animal rights movement locally and internationally. Um, Leah, do you want to start us off? You had some thoughts to share. Sure, thank you. Um,
4: Something that we've talked about before on the show uh, on International Women's Day was how feminism is entangled with animal liberation. And I find that if we're going to talk about it then, we also have to continue the conversation and talk about how feminism is important for us as human activists. Something that I've noticed and that a lot of people have noticed is how there is not as much accountability in the animal rights movement as there should be when there are individuals in the community who are not necessarily understanding what consent is or aren't being held accountable for when they might overstep boundaries. So I just want to start this conversation is how can we be consistent in our messaging? If we're going to say that feminists need to take us seriously, then how do we expect them to take us seriously if we aren't taking consent and accountability culture seriously?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I think these are great points. Um, Nadine, did you have any thoughts that you wanted to add? Yeah, I was just thinking that, like, vegans often speak
2: about how animals don't give us consent to use their bodies.
1: Mm -hmm. So you'd
2: think that vegans would understand the concept of consent when um, we're speaking about human interactions
1: ourselves.
2: Absolutely.
1: Um, Yeah, I think this is, in my experience, is definitely not an issue that's uh, limited to the animal rights movement. I think it can be an issue in all sorts of activist circles, unfortunately. Um, It... Activism, especially I think the most visible forms of activism, it tends to um, attract predators, in my experience, Um, people who, yeah, basically prey on others and and violate consent. And sometimes uh, I think that our movement and a lot of activist circles have issues with um, hero worship and... A lot of times the people who are sort of the most uplifted that get the most attention, the most um, support, tend to be overwhelmingly male and white. And I think that when we allow that to happen, it sort of creates a breeding ground for unequal power relations and um, violations of consent. And also for survivors not being um, taken seriously or believed in that, something that, that we kind of see time and time again is there's a lot of pushback if... Um, you know, one of these male heroes gets um, accused of assault or or abuse. Um, I've experienced it myself, and I've seen a lot of other people experience it. Um, so, to me, I think I think one of the main things that we need to be looking at is just keeping that in check. Just making sure that we're not elevating certain people above everybody else in their activism, and we're making a proactive effort to um, spotlight. Marginalized activists who are really the backbone of this movement. You know, female activists of color are the backbone of the vegan movement, but you wouldn't know that from looking at vegan YouTube or anything. (laughs) Like it's all white men who are getting all the views and um, all the Patreon money and stuff like that. So that's my feeling about it.
4: Thank you for sharing. I agree. Do we maybe want to give like an example of how we can better? stand with survivors like if you see something like this happen like instead of saying where's the evidence we need the evidence before we can why don't we just take a moment to center that person's feelings and um, say that you believe them and whatever they're experiencing and feeling is valid yes regardless of if there's any evidence or not like letting them just have that space and then if there is some kind of legal matter that needs to come out of it it can come right but as far as social media and our our role as activists needs to be, we need to be supporting those people because statistically and, like, socially, we know that most of the time people aren't making these things up. The more social media backlash there is, the less likely anybody else is going to come forward.
1: Yes. I think you're absolutely right. And I feel like that speaks to the importance of education on this topic. I, I feel like a lot of... Um, the comments I see are just showing that that people are very ignorant around this topic. I think people don't realize how incredibly rare false accusations actually are, um, how difficult it is for survivors to come forward, and how it's like, in most cases, it's really not worth just making up an accusation. You know, it's like you only, it's something that in the vast majority of cases, you only do if it if it was really um A major violation and something that affected you a lot. Um, And I think also people, it's really important for everyone to educate themselves on sort of the dynamics of abuse and how how kind of messy and complicated these situations can be. I think people have um, expectations that survivors will behave a certain way and it's like really black and white. When in reality, it's just not that cut and dried most of the time. It's just, like I said, just messy and complicated. So um, people just really need to be aware of the facts and what abusive situations often look like and how it's not it's not necessarily what you would expect.
4: Mm-hmm. Another thing that we can comment on is specifically in the animal rights community. A lot of these allegations and um situations of abuse that we hear about are through these large traveling groups where people will travel all across Europe or all across the um, North America, Turtle Island, um, talking about their activism. And a lot of the times people are put in situations where they have to share an Airbnb or a hotel room with multiple people who they maybe don't know that well, putting people in situations where they already are less safe or less comfortable. So like, how can we Uh, address that? And in what way are those organizations kind of accountable? And are they holding themselves accountable or just blaming these individuals? What kind of training on consent are they giving to people, especially cisgender white men, who we know are the most likely to be committing these kinds of um,
2: abuses? Um, So I've been reading some literature and resources about transformative justice, and the whole approach where you have to look at your conditions, and then the incidents and how those are connected. So, what vegan organizations could do would be to look at the conditions that they have in place that allow for these violent and oppressive incidents to occur and then move on to transform and change those um, conditions so that the possibility of things like that happening doesn't happen again. Mm-hmm. Um, as well as creating guidelines that members can follow, and if they might stray off course, they can. Um, chat and discuss like how they can realign themselves with the organization's values Um, and then to top it off like shame and blame and banning someone should really be the last resort like we should never get to a place where we need to ban someone from a community Um, there's always an escalation in violence so we have to be looking out for those things as well
1: Mm -hmm. yeah
2: cool thanks where did you find that Nadine? TransformHarm.org
1: has a lot of stuff on there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's kind of a whole other whole other topic. I think transformative justice is a very yeah, it subject. Is. But yeah, um,
2: but yeah, I, just for organizations to like have a look at themselves because mm-hmm. banning and acting after something has happened, like it, we really should be doing stuff if we recognize it's bigger than
4: just any one person, banning one person is not going to do anything. And if anything, sometimes, like, if you're getting all of the other people riled up by it and getting everyone on the abuser's side, how how willing are they going to be to listen to a training on consent? Right. And to listen to people who are coming forward as survivors. They're just going to write them off, you know? Yeah.
1: Right. Totally. Yeah, no, I think that speaks to, like just creating a culture in your community where you know again like certain activists especially activists who are already in privileged positions are not being elevated above everyone else and where survivors are being listened to where you know misogyny and racism and any form of bigotry is just wholesale rejected and not just in word but in practice right but that's yeah that's like it requires like a lot of foundation laying, you know, that's not something you can just sort of do with one one action.
4: Christopher Locke is the author of the young adult book series The Enlightenment Adventures. After working for over a decade in the television industry, Christopher left his job to pursue his true dream of writing his own projects full-time. Christopher's love of writing started at a very young age. Many years later when he read Fast Food Nation in 2004, he came to the life-changing realization that an essential part of being a compassionate person is treating all living beings with equal respect. He became an avid animal advocate, enjoying a delicious plant-based diet, living a cruelty-free life, and volunteering for numerous organizations that make the world a kinder place. The Enlightenment Adventures is the beginning of a new exciting chapter in Christopher's life where he gets to pursue his passion as a writer while also inspiring others to make compassionate choices in their lives. Hi, Christopher. Thank you for joining us today on the Animal Voices Show. It is great to have you on the show.
5: Hello. How are you? Thank you for having me.
4: Good, thank you. I would like to start out by saying that I was introduced to your fictional series about a year ago by my friend Amanda. She told me that this series was in her eyes a game changer and that is one of the unique storylines which is told from the point of view of multiple different individuals across many species and lived experiences. From those who are free living to those who suffer in confinement as well as free living survivors who had escaped from exploitation at the hands of humans. Could you please tell us more about what inspired you to make such an interesting series?
5: Yeah, well, first off, thank you so much. That's quite the compliment. So I really appreciate that. And uh, so there were some things at play here. Um, I've been a writer since I was very young, and I wanted to combine my activism for animals with my writing, my two greatest passions in life. And so I actually had a lot of different stories I'd written over the years, and it wasn't until this one when I, for the first time, was like, oh, okay, this is the one that really tells it in the way I want to. And uh, the reason that is is because, so I have a message clearly, um, but I didn't want the book to feel self-righteous or feel like you're being hit over the head with the message. So organically to the story, you're learning about the issues, but then at the same time, uh, you're being entertained. So uh, like the stories, you know, it's a group of animals who finds out how humans are mistreating other animals. And so then they go on an adventure to save animals from humans. And so as they're going on these adventures, as they go to a fur farm or circus, the reader, you learn about these characters. So you meet like a mink in a fur farm, you meet an elephant in a circus, but you don't feel like, oh, it's characters sitting around saying, oh, it's wrong to abuse animals in a circus. You know, it's like you're seeing the abuse happening and then you're rooting for them to get out of there. And so what was fun for me was getting a chance to uh, to tell that story in a really exciting way. Um, and then feel like I'm I'm teaching people something that's important to me.
4: Well, thank you very much. So when I first attempted to acquire these books, I had requested them from my local library, which at the time told me that their youth fiction section was already overflowing and that there would be no space for it. I ended up purchasing them, and as I was reading, it struck me as kind of odd that they would be categorized as youth fiction, seeing as though there are many graphic descriptions of suffering and violence. Who did you see in mind as your target audience for the series before you started, during, and after you'd written the, both novels? And why did you decide to have that intensity of description and have you receive pushback from this decision?
5: Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I think that's an interesting subject to bring up, so I'm glad you did. So uh, the first part was uh, the target audience. So um, it's for – it's like young adults, so like high school and college. And uh, like Hunger Games or uh, something like Harry Potter, like adults can read it and still enjoy it. Um, but I wanted to hit that audience specifically because at that age, they're first starting to become independent from their parents in their thinking. So whatever their parents taught them, they're starting to go, wait a second, I don't know if that's true. And so I wanted to kind of hit them at that impressionable age so that maybe I could, you know, inspire them uh, to care about animals uh, specifically. Uh, and so then in terms of like the violence in the books, um, I did a lot of research for each section. So I mentioned like in the first book, they go to like a circus, for example. So for like a few months, I was watching videos of animals behind the scenes, um, like undercover videos. Uh, I read a bunch of articles. I also did um, talk to people that are undercover investigators. So like for me, it was really important to get that information accurate. And the more that I watched all that, and the more I cried, um, the, I thought I'm only gonna be able to tell their story accurately if I'm honest. And what happens to them is horrific. It's painful and it's, it's heartbreaking. And so I thought, okay, I gotta make sure that the people who read this book and read the section about like the circus, for example, they don't finish that section and go, oh, I don't know, it doesn't seem so bad. You know, it's like, they need to finish that section and go, oh my gosh, like, I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't realize they beat the elephants like that and the tigers and all that. And so then they're, they walk away uh, with, no way to tell themselves that by continuing to support that, that it's still OK. Um, and then on that note, I just wanted to mention. So, yeah, there are some you know, graphic moments. But what was interesting for me was I didn't want the story to be depressing. So I always try to counterbalance all of those moments with the thought that it, at some point Persimmon and her team, the whole point of it is they're going to try to rescue them. So there's this counterbalance of like, yes, you see them in these really horrific situations, but at the same time, you're like, get them out of there. And then you're like, oh right, Persimmon and her team are building this plan to try to get them out of there. So it's hopefully cathartic then when the rescue missions happen, that they're starting to then rescue them. And then like y'all know, uh, in reality, there are billions of animals around the world right now that are not gonna be rescued. They are gonna die and it's awful. And so with these books, It's hopefully you're reading it and you're going, okay, but maybe I can do something. And so it's always kind of like trying to inspire versus just, you know, like depress you or whatever.
4: I think there's a good um, mix of the depressing and the inspiring because there were definitely moments where I was reading and I had to stop and cry. (laughs) Like the scene with Vincent and his brother, like Mm -hmm. I can't even, (laughs) that scene is so rough. So um, yeah. Yeah, but I think it does definitely call to action. You know, her team is called to action. Vincent is called to action. So everybody, you know, across the spectrum in some way is trying to end what's happening.
5: Yeah, and, and thank you for mentioning that because um, I, I know there are some people that have come up to me and said, hey, the books have made me cry. And they're like halfway through and they're like, does it get happier? And I'm like, well, <laughs> it's you know, it's like each section has its, you know, uh, moment where like when I wrote it, you know, like a character who I really like gets hurt. It hurts me. It really makes me sad. But I always tell the person that means you're a good person. You know, it means you have a good heart and that you care about these animals. And um, you know, I don't like I like um, movies and stories that move me. And like I never shy. Like if I see something like about like a genocide or whatever, like it's awful. But I'm like, I want to know what happens. You know, I want to be moved. I want to see these stories because I want to know how I can maybe be a better activist and hopefully take on people like that. So, But I'm glad that, you know, uh, it didn't leave you, like, scarred for life. So that's good.
4: Something that I didn't have written down but that this also makes me think of is a lot of the times people will say, oh, I'm going to watch Slaughterhouse footage to inspire myself, to remind me why I'm doing what I'm doing. And I think, like, that imagery is really traumatic to watch. And like reading it in this form is another way we can educate ourselves, you know, because you've put that research in. And we can also, you know, do our own research and read about the ways in which other animals are harmed, just to kind of give us a different perspective that other than what we always see, you know, on the screen.
5: Yeah, I definitely agree. I mean, uh, people that are undercover investigators are absolutely heroes, because I think people don't sometimes believe how bad it can get. So when they see that, The footage, there's no way of denying and saying, well, that doesn't happen. It's like, oh, you're watching it right now, and it's as bad as you think.
4: Yeah. So shifting over, for me, one of the main themes of the series is the difference in activism styles of the Enlighteners and the Dissidents. So for a little bit of context, the Enlighteners, led by Persimmon, the raccoon, approach their rescue missions with detailed planning, prioritizing their own safety as rescuers with the ultimate goal of creating peace between humans and other animals. In contrast, the dissidents, led by Vincent the Mink, approach rescue missions as all-or-nothing scenarios where the well-being of the humans is ignored or even threatened, and they see a future where humans just don't exist, or don't interact with other animals at all. Both groups want to see all animals liberated from exploitation, however their visions of the future are conflicting. Persimmon sees humans as inherently good, and wants to help them see the same in other species so that they may all coexist, whereas Vincent believes all humans to be intrinsically bad, and wants to see them killed. I think it's interesting how the series so far, as far as I interpret it, does not say that one way is right or the other is wrong. Rather, it provides context for Persimmon and Vincent, which allows us to understand why their framing of justice and visions of the future are so radically different. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on this interpretation of mine and what was your intention in offering such vastly different characters and activism styles?
5: Yeah, well, I can tell you first off, like, it's so exciting to hear you say to me what the, you know, the, the themes are, because I put a lot of thought into trying to make these things like, you know, act clear when people are reading it. And so it's, it's nice to know that like all that work, uh, like, like paid off. So um, that's exciting in of itself. Um, but yeah, for me, uh, my intention wasn't to write the books and say, here's exactly how you should be an activist. Uh, it was to make people think. So as activists, we all have many different methods. We, some people do corporate outreach, some people do demos, some people do straight up like, you know, actions. And so there's so many different ways. And I think each one, when you weigh it, you're like, okay, here's the positives and negatives. And I wanted people who are activists to read this book and to see themselves in these characters. So like Persimmon and her team, like for me, for example, was important in the beginning, they're not activists. They don't know animals are being harmed. They don't know anything. And I think your average person, that's kind of them coming into it, not really knowing what's happening. So then they can live vicariously through Persimmon and her team as they learn. And then hopefully as her team and uh, she become more enlightened, they themselves are, you know, as readers going, wow, I didn't know that. Maybe I should make a change in my life. This is like the general concept of like, here's different ways you can do activism, but not say anyone is like bad or or even, I mean, they're all kind of good, but like there are some bad parts to them. So um, I did want to leave that open. Uh, And also something I also tried to put in there was as activists, I don't think we take seriously enough like self-care. I mean, it can be really like depressing at times for us just thinking like, can we ever make this work? And so I wanted people to see Persimmon and her team at times like feeling um, beaten down and feeling like, I don't know, can we make this, you know, happen so that then you see them other characters saying, hey, Persimmon, you should take a break. You know, like we just rescued a lot of animals. That was exhausting. Let's take, you know, so I want people that are you know reading it to like be like, oh, maybe I should like give myself a break sometimes. And so it's just it's just important for me. I want people to know that, you know, like we're not going to be our best activist if we're not also like healthy emotionally. And um, so that, that was something also kind of hidden in the story I wanted to people get out of it too.
4: Great, thank you. So building on that last question, uh, it really struck me the difference between the main characters, Persimmon and Vincent. Vincent's character is quite harsh and pessimistic in contrast to Persimmon's friendly, optimistic demeanor. The main difference between them being that Persimmon has always been free living, whereas Vincent suffered an escape from a fur farm. I think his character is a brilliant way of portraying non-human survivors of trauma. Even though Vincent incites violence in his actions and butts head with persimmon, you're compelled to feel nothing but empathy for him because you understand the context of what he went through and why he's fighting. How did you go about creating a character such as Vincent who suffers from PTSD and whose activism and rescuing is entangled with his own need for revenge against the humans who hurt him? What do you think his character offers for people who have never considered non-human animals as survivors?
5: Yeah. So it's interesting. You mentioned like about like PTSD and all that. Cause I do think that people don't give, you know, these animals like enough credit that they went through trauma. You know, it's like, um, when they rescue like beagles or animals from like animal testing, and then they expect them to just be like a dog that just jumps around and has fun. It's like, they're going to need some time to rehabilitate, um, or like dogs and dog or something. But so anyway, um, you know, it's interesting because when I first came up with the story, uh, I always knew I wanted there to be a polar opposite to Persimmon in terms of her activism. And originally I thought it was going to be, there's this character named Raleigh who's a raccoon and he kind of butts heads with her too. But once I came up with Vincent, he's so smart and cunning. And then also he lived like, like unimaginable horror at the hands of humans. And so the moment I thought of his story, I was like, Oh, my gosh. Like he has the perfect excuse to say, look, Brazilian, I don't think you get it. Like humans are evil. Like they mur- tried to murder me and my whole family and all the minks like they're irredeemable. And it's very difficult to tell him, you know, it, like, no, that's not true, because he's like, I'm telling you, I lived it. So I wanted someone with that much of a strong, uh, you know, like true story to, to kind of rely on so that as a reader, too, you're kind of like left with this feeling of, I don't know, I don't, maybe he's right. You know, like, like you kind of agree with him sometimes, and I think that it makes for a much more interesting story. Um, and then also you mentioned, uh, you, know, like, um, uh, you know, like, how does this character offer people, um, you know, never considered non-human animals. Um, something that I think is interesting is, as an activist, um, there are times when I look back when I wasn't an animal advocate and vegan, and i sometimes have have a hard time forgiving myself for that because i think well i knew some of it like okay maybe i hadn't seen all the videos but like i kind of i knew i knew, obviously if you eat an animal it, the animal must have been killed at some point so i find it hard sometimes and i think vincent's an instant re- reminder of that idea of like should we be forgiven you know and of course ultimately i do i do think humans You know, I think it's a process, you know, we grew up in a system that told us this was okay. So I do think we should be forgiven. But I do think it's kind of interesting to be, you know, to think about that, of like that concept of, you know, from an animal who has every right to hate us, you know, should he forgive us? Um, And there are times when I I wish I could like tell Vincent, like, I'm sorry for what they did. I'm sorry. You know, for me, it was important to have some character who the trauma is very real, and you know that um, what he went through um, is something that we all have to grapple with. So, um, so yeah, that's pretty much that.
4: Great, thank you. So, another question is something that folks in the animal rights community are talking about a lot recently is recentering animals in their own movement. Oftentimes, we get caught up supporting vegan influencers and activists who are doing a lot of work to get other humans to go vegan, meanwhile forgetting that the movement isn't about eating vegan food only, but rather about ending species-based oppression and liberating non-human animals from exploitation and recognizing their personhood. I think your book is an excellent tool for reminding humans, activists or otherwise, of the importance of rescue and sanctuary work, as well as portraying non-human animals as people. We may be aware of the trauma which we face as, as humans who organize rescues, however there's little attention on those who are rescued and how their trauma will stay with them, like Vincent. Do you see a need for this kind of recentering? And how do people react to characters like Persimmon and Vincent? Are they receptive to these messages of all animals as people worthy of rescuing and supporting?
5: Yeah. So, first of all, I absolutely agree with the idea of recentering. Um, one of the things about the book when I started was I thought, okay, I want to inspire people to care about animals. And I had a story, like a script, that I almost finished. I got almost all the way through. And it was about humans that went around rescuing animals and then I was like something's not clicking like it doesn't quite work and I was like why is that and then when I came up with the idea for the animals to rescue our animals and for you to be with the animals in the cage like when you're with the Vincent the fur farm section you meet these characters and you feel like you're in that cage with them and I feel like that's more of an effective way for you to go oh my gosh like I never thought about it from their perspective before and so to think about it from these, like, literally, like, you're an elephant in a circus. Every day you wake up, they're going to hit you with a bull hook. Like, that's, that's something that, you know, it's very visceral. And so it was always important for me then from that point on to every time I'm writing it to be like, in fact, when I was writing it, sometimes I would have a video or a picture on the side of my screen to remind me this is who you're writing this for, this elephant or this um, this dog in, in the dogfighting ring. This is who you're writing it really always kept me like, you know, really emotionally involved in the story. Um, So two things about like then people's like reception to the story that's really nice is, so I've had people tell me that the books did inspire them to become vegan. And I can't even tell you like, that's like the ultimate, you know, like, like dream is that like, someone's life now is going to be dedicated to helping to make all these other animals like have less sufferings, like okay like you know i did it like i like that's the whole point of the books um but then the other cool thing was that people who were already animal activists said that the books reinvigorated their activism and i was like oh that's really great cuz i was i guess i wasn't thinking as much about that but i was like that's so cool because um i know how sometimes you get busy and you're doing other stuff or maybe you just get burned out because it is emotionally um you know exhausting uh to then have read something like this and go these animals are suffering they need me i need to refocus um and i, I love that um and then the, the other point um you asked about specifically people's reaction to persimmon and vincent and that's a that's really interesting so like um when i was writing the vincent stuff like like we said he he's okay with um if to help uh, liberate other animals he's okay with attacking humans and i was like i don't know i think people are going to like Think that's too extreme, or maybe they'll like think that I'm trying to incite violence or something. But like, to Vincent, like everyone that's told me that about the stories, they're like, Vincent's like my favorite character. I love him. I totally agree with him. And I'm like, wait, wait, wait. Like you're a human. Like he doesn't really like humans. I don't know if you get that. Like you know, like I like that you think that animals shouldn't be hurt, but like you know, like his whole point is that humans can't be redeemed. So it's kind of interesting. I wasn't expecting people to be so on board with him. And then conversely, so Persimmon, like I'm a big feminist, and uh, I wanted a female lead character who is the activist that we're our hero. Most of the people in the animal advocacy community are women fighting, and uh, I don't think that's given enough attention to. So anyway, so then I was like, well, surely everyone's going to really love Persimmon. And I've been surprised. Some people, they use these two terms. Sometimes they say she's bossy, and they say she's self-righteous. And I'm always like, I feel like there's a little bit of sexism mixed in with that because if she were a man, by the way, let's say Vincent, who wants to kill humans, uh, I don't know if people would call her bossy or you know self-righteous. Um, and so I was a little disappointed. And there are people that really like her and that you know, say that like, like, one of my favorite things someone said was like, when I grew up, I wanna be like Persimmon. And I was like, yeah, that's great, I love that. So there are people that do really like her but I was disappointed that people felt that this strong female who speaks up for herself, doesn't let anyone give her any crap, that they saw that in some way as like also a negative thing. I don't know if you, maybe you had that reaction to her or if that makes sense to you. But that was, that was a little disappointing for me.
4: That's actually really surprising to me. I mean, now that you mention it, it kind of I, I get where people are coming from, like with the misogyny. Mm. I mean, I saw her as like a powerful heroine protagonist. Yeah, that's surprising to me.
5: Yeah. So, you know, you never know how people are going to react. And I I think uh, as a writer, I always love hearing people's reactions because sometimes they are things I wasn't expecting. And like, for example, like, you know, the questions today, like I love that you're talking about the kind of in-depth themes of the story because it really was a a lot of I put a lot of thought into that. But I was like, I hope people get all this because I don't want it to just be exciting. I want it to be something that makes people think. So to hear you kind of break it down in all these different ways, like, like, I'm like, yes, like, this is great. You know, I love that.
4: Yeah, thank you. I'm really looking forward to having you join the Vancouver Vegan Feminist Book Club this Sunday, April twenty sixth, from 5 to 7pm Pacific Standard Time. We will be having our meetings on Zoom calls for the foreseeable future, so anybody around the world is welcome to join us. We'll be sharing that Zoom link on our Facebook group, and you can go ahead and just click the link. We're going to talk about all of these topics and dive in. So thank you so much again for agreeing to, to do that with us.
5: Great. I can't wait.
4: Cool. Will you be willing to tell us more about what we should expect from the next novel in the series?
5: Yes. Well, thank you for asking. So it is a trilogy, so there are three books. And uh, the third book I'm writing, and um, when I wrote the first two I had, I had a career in TV and I quit that job to, to basically focus on the books. Um, and I was doing all these odd jobs, and then at some point I was like, oh, I need to make like, a living to like, survive. So then I had to get a full-time job. So then I'm working full-time, so then it's kind of eaten into my writing time. So I'm writing it, and I love writing it, but it's just taking a little longer. Um, and then also it's the last book, and so for me, I really want to get it right. And um, I also, like all these themes we're talking about, like I want to end it on a note that um, I don't want to send the wrong message. I also want it to be uplifting, but also realistic. Um, and also, like I want it to be exciting as hell. You know, I want people to really enjoy this. And so um, for me, I, I, it's got to be epic. And so I keep thinking like, like all these other series I've seen you know, like whatever, like Lord of the Rings or something, and I'm like, okay, how do I get it to that epic level where it's like, you, you, you just like, you're like, wow, like the, the whole world's involved now, and like it's this big, um, like battle, like because Persimmon and Vincent now are these two polar opposites, kind of battling with different concepts. I'm like, how do I get them to kind of hit butt heads, um, in an interesting way, um, but then also keeping in mind that. Uh, which side I'm kind of on and, and who I'm focusing on, you know, like, which which side I want to be the hero and the other one where it's like, I don't know, if is that the way we should go? So, um, but I'm, I'm loving writing it. Um, and I'm actually going to be probably pretty depressed myself when I finish the books, because I'm like, what do I do now with my life? You know, it's like the last six years of my life have been focused on this, but I get to still work on it now. And I feel like these characters are my friends. So it's fun for me to be kind of in that world still with them and to get a chance to you know like hang out with them Um, but for everything I've put them through I I imagine they're going to be happy that I I stopped hanging out with them as well though
3: (laughs) I'm thinking of an animated tv series Mm -hmm. and you're into television so you can thank me for that idea that's what I'm picturing in my head (laughs)
5: Let me tell you, like, I really feel like like the big rescue missions and all that, they're really exciting. And I like as I wrote it, like i I, very cinematic. And so, I mean, I really think it would make a very exciting uh, big screen experience. Um, So, yeah, definitely.
3: I'm just thinking, uh, speaking of rescue scene in Oakja. You probably saw uh, that film. Like of that course. was so captivating and gripping, and I was crying <laughs> during it because I related so much with the rescuers. And yeah, let's see it with persimmon.
5: Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I mean, um, and you know what's fun is there are more and more major motion pictures like the Planet of the Earth, um, Ape movies. Like those are those had a lot of you know really uh, very clear animal rights messages, and those were like. 100 million dollar movies. So um, we're definitely moving more and more into the mainstream. So that's really exciting. Um, And if James Cameron wants to direct the movies, I'm in.
4: Sounds good. Thank you.
5: Thank you for having me on. I I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. And also appreciate y'all's activism, because this show in of itself is wonderful for activism. But in your own personal lives, I know y'all do a lot of activism. So thank you.
4: Thanks. Appreciate it. Thank you again, author Christopher Locke, for joining us today to talk about your fictional book series, The Enlightenment Adventures. You can find Christopher and his work at Locke Author on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and visit his website at Christopher-Locke.com. If you enjoy the books, please make sure to leave a review on Amazon and or Goodreads. Positive reviews are a great way to encourage others to check out the books. If you're interested in asking Christopher some more questions of your own or continuing the discussion, you're welcome to join us this Sunday, April 26th from 5 to 7 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, where the Vancouver Vegan Feminist Book Club, now called Vegan Feminist Book Club on Facebook, will be having a Zoom meeting. Please feel free to join and ask any questions you want, and even if you haven't read the books, it'll be a great time to discuss some of these topics. Hope to see you then.
1: You've been listening to Animal Voices here on 100.5 FM Vancouver Co-op Radio in Vancouver, BC, Canada, unceded Coast Salish territories. Join us next Friday, May 1st at noon. We will be featuring an interview with Dr. Silesh Rao, founder of the Climate Healers organization. He will be speaking on healing the earth and preventing extinction in this time when we are experiencing not only a climate crisis, but now a pandemic crisis as well. We here at Animal Voices want to connect with you online. Visit our website, animalvoices.org, where you can stream past shows and download them as podcasts. You can also see our show blog there with detailed links and subscribe to us on iTunes. Stay in touch with us on Facebook and Instagram at Animal Voices Vancouver and on Twitter at Animal Voices YVR. And once again, please remember to visit coopradio.org and click the purple banner at the top of the page to become a member or make a one-time donation today. The Animal Voices team thanks you from the bottom of our hearts for your support. We wouldn't be here without it. I personally have been producing and hosting shows here on Vancouver Co-op Radio for about five years now. Co-op Radio is special to me because every show is run by volunteers in our local community, and the station provides a platform for voices that often go unheard in mainstream radio. I hope you'll continue to support the work we're doing through your membership. Again, that's coopradio.org. Click the purple banner at the top to donate. Stay tuned for Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. Thank you for listening to Animal Voices today. Please stay safe and healthy and remember to be kind to the animals.
5: Vancouver Co-op Radio is a unique nonprofit radio station that produces creative and engaging programming for voices often ignored by mainstream media. We rely on the financial support of listeners like you to help us continue to produce innovative and hyper-local radio shows and podcasts. Please consider donating online at Coopradio.org forward slash donate or by calling 604-684-8494. That's
2: 604-684-8494. Thank you for supporting Vancouver Co-op Radio, your community radio and podcast station.